Welcome to the No Podcast with me, Nikki Spo. Thanks to Sana Skin Studio for supporting the No Podcast. Sana is a skin studio that is shifting the relationship with your skin and your products through goal-driven facials, real guidance, and clean skincare. Stay tuned for our promo code so you can receive $25 off of your first facial at Sana Skin Studio. Hey friends, welcome to The Know with me, Nikki Spo. Today we are celebrating our 10th episode and I am so very excited about this milestone. A year ago, I would have never had the guts to pursue this vision and it was out of fear. And here we are today telling stories of tenacious, brave women. We're sharing their experiences, their resilience, their hope. And today I have a very, very special guest, a woman who has helped me to speak my own truth, my soul sister, a fellow Aries, a powerful woman, a mother, a fellow Fleetwood Mac lover, Sloan Spanierman. Sloan was the first person I reached out to when I wanted to get sober. She has been a light in my life and has helped me out of the darkest days of my alcoholism. In this 10th episode, Sloan opens up about her sobriety journey, her perinatal loss journey, and her journey of coming back to life and into the light after living in the darkness. As in the entire message of our podcast, Sloan believes in the power of shared experience and how identification can heal the world. Sloan makes these tough topics feel easier, lighter, and more manageable. And she discusses how others have helped her along the way and how powerful it can be to ask for and actually be willing to receive help. There are no accidents. This message is for you, wherever you are in your journey. Let's go. Sloan Spanierman. Man, it's like a fairy tale love story of friendship, I think, how we met. It's very romantic. Okay, so we were invited to a peanut event, right? Um, by Adrian Bosch. And you're sat like across diagonal from me, right? And uh, somehow we like, she's talking and we lock eyes. I just lock eyes with you. And it's like, we knew that we were soul sisters. I know it sounds so cheesy. Like when I say it out loud, but I'm, I'm thinking like, it really felt like that. Like I felt a deep connection to you from the moment I saw you. It was sisterhood at first sight. It really was. It's like beyond best friends, right? I, I think it's safe to say that we are our soul sisters and we are very much on this journey together. And we're doing this business together now, which is amazing. And so there's like, you never know like how the universe will bring certain pe people into your life. And that's who you are to me. You are one of the first people who's really seen me for who I am in all of my ugliest and worst moments. And so for that, I am forever grateful to you, Sloan. And I am so, so excited to have you on as a guest today for our 10th episode of The No. So this is who you are to me. And um, I know that we're, we are all different things to different people. Um, so I want to start this off by asking who you are to you. It's so difficult for me to define myself for so many reasons. A, because I am so many different things to so many different people, right? And I wear so many hats. And my very good friend, Stephanie Greenfield, and I hope that she listens to this, said to me when I, when I started my journey into parenthood and motherhood, she said to me, first and foremost, Sloan, you are a woman. Don't forget that. And so I always, before anything else, that, that, that is a huge piece that, I, that I, I identify with. So first, I'm a woman. Then I would say I'm a mother. Then I would say I'm a sponsor. 
I'm a mentor, I'm a friend, I'm a hustler. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully I am someone that inspires. I'm definitely someone that is inspired on the daily. And I am a yoga teacher and I am an interventionist. And I just took on a position with a company called Crisis Case Management. And I am the director of business development for them. And I'm a mom to a boy that's turning four tomorrow. And I'm a mom to an angel in heaven. And, you know, and I'm divorced. And I, I mean, I could go on. So those are the things that today I, I, I am. And I'm a sober woman. A huge part of our relationship is that we j- share this journey of sobriety and you will be celebrating 15 years of sobriety this November. Um, I We're going to talk about all of these hats that you wear because I think it's really important for people to trust themselves and their own journeys, right? Like that you can be all of these different things. We're multifaceted people and you don't have to just be one thing in the world. You can be so many different things, but I want to start with talking about this journey of sobriety. I think it's really important. And I think that like, it's not something that people talk about so openly. And I know that if it weren't for someone like you, who just so confidently told me about your journey from the beginning, that I don't know that I would have really sought out the help. And I think that it would be a disservice to our our brand, our podcast to exclude this part of it. So what prompted you to even choose this way of life? I think a lot of people question whether or not they should live a sober life. What prompted you to choose a life of sobriety? Okay. So when I think about this in a global way, like I feel like it almost shows me. Um, I was 20, I was 22 years old and I was at my version of a bottom, whatever that looked like. You know, I, I had failed out of school. I had horrible relationships um, at 22, at 22, you know, and I've had many, I will have November 1st, uh, God willing, I will have 15 years of continuous sobriety. So that means no slips, no mistakes, no taking a hit of a, anything that means like being present with myself 24 hours a day, seven days a week for almost 15 years. I had a lot of the physical things going on with myself. I was battling a very gnarly eating disorder. Um, I weighed like 90 pounds. Um, I had scarlet fever. I was uh, broke. I was in debt. More than anything, I was miserable. I was miserable and I looked in the mirror and I hated myself. You know, and I I always identify with that part of anyone's story that I hear, like, and it doesn't matter if you went to jail or you were sitting on the floor of your penthouse, you know, the feeling of, of not wanting to be alive or, or not understanding why you're on this planet is just a feeling that I would not wish upon anyone, you know? And so to me, regardless of what was going on in my life, which was all terrible, I, my biggest thing was that I just, I, I hated myself, but for me, um, 12 step program has been a huge part of my journey, if not the biggest part of my journey. Um, I was actually talking about this with my sponsor the other day. If someone were to hand me a magic pill and tell me that I could drink safely forever or do drugs safely forever um, and never have any consequences, I still wouldn't take it because the entire life that I have today is based around my continuous sobriety, my network, my women, my people, my moral compass, a lot of that comes from what I learned in 12 that program. And there's a lot of debate about it. But like, for me, it, it has worked from day one. So that's a unicorn thing, right? Like, that doesn't happen all the time. And I think it's a big part of the conversation to 
really include the concept that like slips can happen and they do a lot of the time. Sure. And that it is always worth coming back and not giving up. And I want to say, because I think it's also important, two things. Number one, I don't think the fact that I haven't slept makes me any better or more sober or more emotionally well than anybody else. It just has not been part of my program um, or, or part of my experience. And as you know, I've been through many things in the last 15 years, including the death of my child. And, you know, in those moments, I was more um, dying felt more appealing to me than picking up a drink. Like I understand in my soul, on a soul level, that picking up a drink will make nothing better. So that's just that's just over. That part of my life is over. I also got sober and I stayed sober. I, I have God willing and, you know, I have not had any slips and I'm proud of that, but I also know that I haven't done it alone. So I, I almost like don't even take the credit for my 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 sobriety. How many? I mean, I have like 400 and something days now. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> it's not 15 years, but I know. And you know what? Uh, like, and I want to touch on this is like when I think about 15 years, like even though I'm asking you these questions, Sloan, I'm like, oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. Like maybe I should just give up and have a drink, right? Like <laughs> when I, I get it, I get it. I, I totally like, get the solution. Right. Like when I think about my whole life as a sober woman, I get so overwhelmed. I think about like our two, we have little children, right? They're going to get married one day. I want a glass of champagne for a toast. And how am I not going to go on a girl's trip to Napa or wherever and have wine and, and like all of these things that I forecast in my, in my brain. And I'm like, I just, I can't like, it's, I may as well just throw in the towel now because 15 years and a lifetime seems so daunting. How can I possibly, possibly do something like that? And that's where the importance of like taking it one day at a time really comes in. How has that worked for, obviously it's worked for you, but how do you even do that when you're in the moment and you're having such a hard time? Because you've had these, and you mentioned it, you've had moments where you could have coped, not that it would have solved it, but it could have eased in some capacity any type of pain that you might've been going through, right? When it was such like a regular thing for us, people like us to turn to, to drinking and using. How do you stay present? Okay. So the problem with someone like me, and I think I could speak for both of us is like, it's never enough. You know, I could have 20 drinks, it's not that, you know, people, I think, that don't understand addiction or, or that's not fair. Maybe people that are not as educated in addiction. I obviously am extremely educated on this, on this topic. But there's an assumption, you know, that, that while the body can only tolerate so much, like the reality is no matter how much I were to drink or no matter how many illicit drugs I were to take or no matter how much sugar I were to consume or how much love I'm given, it is never enough for me. You know, and with that really deep seated knowledge in not only in my brain, but also in my heart and soul, I understand that picking up a drink would maybe relieve one minute, but then it would, it would lead into the next minute and the next minute and the next minute. I mean, for me, and I believe this is true only for myself, I can't speak for anyone else. I believe that I was born with what is called a dog sized hole. And I don't mean to offend anyone that, you know, doesn't like that word. Um, I believe for me, alcoholism is not only a a physical disease that I have, but it is a spiritual malady. 
And I am born feeling afraid all the time, you know, and, and I know we're going to get a little bit into the family thing, even though I don't want to get that much into it because I take responsibility for my actions, you know, but maybe I didn't get the, the amount of nurturing that I would have liked to have gotten as a small child. But what I will say is it wouldn't probably wouldn't have mattered. Right. Because I feel this sense of dis-ease, right? Dis-ease. And, you know, I'm working with a, with a great therapist right now. I just started again because at every leg of this journey, new and exciting, annoying things pop up and, and unfortunately they have to be dealt with. And she said to me, you know, very clearly like, two weeks ago, this is not like six years ago. It's not 10 years ago. It's not 15 years. It was said to me like two weeks ago, it would never be enough. You know, and we were talking about something emotional and I'm like, ah, how is that still true? But it is true. And that's where I know you do. And that is where, you know, look, I do two things. I, I definitely live this concept of one day at a time as we, you and I were talking about a few weeks ago. Sometimes it's a 20 minute interval, right? Sometimes I can't even get through the whole day. Sometimes it has to be like, I can do anything for one minute. I can do anything for five minutes. I could do anything. The 20 minute is my favorite and something I learned very early on in my study. I could do anything for 20 minutes. And then at 20 minutes, I can check in with myself and be like, okay, can I continue whatever it is? And, and that sometimes gets me to a 24 hour period. That is always, that has always worked for me. And the second thing is like finding a new set of spiritual tools, right? Which uh, annoying as it is for me, I've had to resharpen every few years. You know, it's not like I got sober day one at 22 and I was given like the whole toolkit that was going to last me for the rest of my life, even though I wish it did. <laughs> but as life evolves and I evolve and I become more uh, teachable and reachable, I would say my phone always autocorrects teachable to reachable. So I've kind of integrated that into my mind. Like I am reachable. You know, I've had to integrate different practices in like meditation and prayer and whatever calms me or guides me, you know, and that has been revolutionary. I was out once and with a, with a person who knows that I'm sober and they're like, well, now that you're in such a better place, don't you think you've gotten it under control and you can now have one drink? And I, you know, and I did my best to art, art, like articulate why I cannot have just one drink, like this concept that like it will never be enough, right? Um, what would you say to non-alcoholics who have an alcoholic in their life and around this concept, right? That it, you, it's not like you just get, you, you fixed the problem, you, you, were, you were an alcoholic and now you're not. Can you clarify that? Yes. Yeah. So like, there's so many different, different ways we could look at this. I mean, first of all, I have kind of a rule about like not over explaining my disease to anyone because people will like fight me or argue with me. And I'm like, you know what, this concept has worked for me and given me an incredible life where I pretty much don't hate myself 90% of the time, which is like, I went from zero to 90%. So I think that's pretty good. So something's working. Alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease, right? So as long as I know in my heart what I am, like you do you, boo. You want to fight me like any other piece of it is, and I think you and I can can really like drive on this is it's not that one would never be enough is that one is not satisfying. So like when someone says to me, and I've had this many times where, you know, I'm very out about my sobriety, I, you know, professionally, personally, people have had lots of opinions on that could not care less. 
I have always done what has felt authentic and right to me. And I believe part of that accountability has also always kept me sober. Um, but the times when this has come up, if I'm at a dinner and I'm repeatedly, repeatedly asked, you know, I'll be like, there is not enough alcohol in the world to quench my thirst. You know, not usually quiets them. But like, you know, you go read some literature. And if you're so obsessed, perhaps you should look at your own drinking. And this is how like we even built our relationship around alcoholism is like your openness, right? <clears throat> About your disease. And that I felt like, okay, here's a, a woman that is like a peer that I can talk to about these things. And I know for a fact that like, and I said it earlier, I would not, I don't think I would have asked for help had I not known how to figure like you in my life, walking around very open about her sobriety and her alcohol alcoholism. And so I recently, as you know, shared that I am sober, right? On my one year anniversary in April, I shared that I'm sober and I was celebrating. And since then, lots of people have actually reached out to me asking about, I think I might be an alcoholic. And I think it's really interesting that I'm, you know, as you know, I'm not the person to judge whether or not you are an alcoholic. I mean, I've had, so, I had so many people along the, along the years, I would reach out and be like, I think I have a drinking problem. I think I have a drinking problem. And they'd say, no, 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 you don't. You just, you know, you just drink too much this one night or, oh no, it's normal. It's totally normal. You're, you're a mom. You can, you can relax a little bit at the end of your night when like, I knew, I always knew that I was an alcoholic. You know, and now I see people reaching out to me, and I'm sure it happens to you a lot as well, asking me for the answer on their drinking. And it really is, like you said, a self-diagnosis. I think if you know in your heart that you are an alcoholic or you have a drinking problem, it's worth paying attention to. If you drink a lot and you don't have a drinking problem, you're going to say it prettier than I, I am saying it right now. <laughs> like, like, try to stop and see what happens. Um, the basic text of the 12-step program that I attend um, has a, a book called The Big Book. And in The Big Book, it talks about how if you don't think you have a problem, try some controlled drinking. Go out and try some controlled drinking. And look, my experience, 99% of the time when people try to go out and try controlled drinking, like it doesn't work. Uh, meaning that they then hit a new bottom and end up deciding they need to be sober. I think that's what you're referring to. But I also like what you're touching on. And I think, you know, the value of your podcast as a whole, and obviously I'm slightly biased because I like worship you and think you're amazing and that your podcast is brilliant. And every person you have on, I think is brilliant. And I have ADD. So like the fact that I could sit down and listen to podcasts is like, it has to be really <laughs> riveting because I just wouldn't be able to do it. But I think what works here and what I try to explain to people when I'm approaching them about perhaps being on the podcast is like the most incredible resource that we can offer to another person is our experience right my experience and my friend Francesca Campbell said this many years ago to me and it always the words always stuck out of my head um my experience makes me uniquely qualified to help others you know and that is true of anyone in any circumstances and I think that's a really important element of the camaraderie of any like any 12-step program any program is listening to other people's experience, their strength and their hope, um, and realizing that we're not all that different. And one thing that I want to touch on also is like before I came into the program, I had this concept of what people in the program looked like. And that kept me from getting help 
because I had such a sense of superiority that I was better than an al- any, any alcoholic, not realizing that there are women like you and me, mothers, doctors, lawyers, successful people. And yeah, other people who've hit a lot lower bottoms than I might have, you know, people who don't have homes, people who are struggling with severe mental illness, you know, but I had this sense of superiority and it's something that I, I think if we are all really, really honest with ourselves, we all have felt like that at one point in our life. And we, we demonstrate this by the judgment we place on other people in any capacity, right? When we are judging someone else, it comes from a sense of superiority, which in some really, really deep seated way is like an insecurity. Sure. If you spot it, you got it. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't come into the rooms because I was like, I'm better than these people. Yet it was all these people that I met that have kept me sober. Because hearing their stories and their experiences, what they've overcome, the beautiful lives people have created from really, really dark places has inspired me tremendously. And I know that it has for you. And I'm grateful that you're also like, you're, you're the main person in my life who's been able to inspire me from your darkness. Have there been moments in which you have questioned breaking your sobriety, like specifically? Leading up to that moment of, of ending my marriage, I, I obviously with the person that I had had great respect and love for and as the father of my children, um, who we buried our child together, there were many, many feelings that I was having um, around knowing that that was coming to an end. And the pain was excruciating. And then we got locked down in a house together. Um, and that pain was overwhelming. And as I said, I have ADD. So being on Zoom meetings was very difficult for me to connect and to hear the message. And I felt very isolated and very alone for the first time in many, 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 many years. And, you know, I'm a very blessed person. I have a lot of people in my life who love me, who care about me. I was not alone, but I felt very alone. And, you know, I I believe that in my experience with other addicts, the kind of common thread that we all share is A, this like crippling fear and B, this deep sense of loneliness. You know, I could be in a room of a million people that are all telling me they love me. I'll, I'll look at the one that doesn't and, you know, I'll feel alone. So in that moment, I felt very, I, it just felt really dark. It felt darker than weirdly it had ever felt. And, you know, that was right when you called me. And, and now looking back on it, I'm like, what I have actually picked up, I don't know. But I was hearing all this discussion about gummies and part of my sobriety is I take nothing that's mood altering in any way. So I don't take pills. I don't take gummies. I, you know, I know people have different definitions. Mine is complete sobriety. I am fucking here whether I like it or not. Um, And I was hearing all these people talking about gummies. And I was like, I want to take a gummy. It would be so nice to like take a vacation from my mind. And you called me. And I went over. And again, as I said, like the biggest gift I have is my shared experience. So you called me, I got to sit out on that weird overcast rainy day. And I think mm-hmm. we sat like 10 feet apart and I brought you my book and, and I got to tell you my story and I was reminded of why I don't take gummies. And I don't know what would have happened. That's the truth. I don't know because I believe that 
something greater than me interjected on that day and put you there. Like, I know it was leading up to me calling you. And then you had your own set of experiences that was leading up to receiving a call from me. And I've grew, I grew up like non-religious, you know, like I went, my parents encouraged me. My dad grew up Jehovah's witness. My mom was not religious. I grew up like my parents were very open-minded and I'm actually really grateful for that, but I didn't, I like missed out on certain like principles that you learn in a church or by going to temple, you know, things like that. But they did encourage me. Like I would go to a Christian camp, a summer camp. And then I went to like a, a, a JCC camp once, you know, and it was like, it was centered around that. And I went through a Buddhist period, but it was all like searching for the more, right? Like I always, like you, I had that God size hole and I just needed to fill it with something, anything, anything. And if it, that wasn't satisfactory, I'd look to something else, you know? And so for a while I was searching and then I kind of gave up on this concept of God. And I thought that only weak people need God. Boy, I was maybe, you know what? I was about to say I was wrong, but I'm right because I am weak. And I need my version of God. Now, I know, like, obviously, I know that I'm a strong person, right? But I am an, a, a strong, hugely imperfect person, and I need help. And I have come to a point where I'm okay saying that. And so leading up to when I called you, I could tell you that I did not believe in God or a higher power. And then when you told me that you were going to go get gummies and that I called you, that stopped me in my tracks. A woman that you at the time were coming up on 14 years of sobriety was going to risk breaking your sobriety to go get gummies, but I called you and that stopped and you came over to my house instead. I like that still shakes me. And so to this day, to this day, like when I think about like when I question God or the higher power, whatever that that is for me, I, th I think about that moment and how the universe interjected and said, no, this isn't going to happen. And here we are. This conversation is so good. But before we keep going, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Sana Skin Studio. The best way for me to describe Sana is that it feels like coming home. Unlike traditional facials, Sana's facials are rooted in education. And I love this so much. Every experience I've had at Sana has been a chance to learn more about my skin and its needs. I love that the facials are effective while also being accessible enough to be a monthly ritual rather than a yearly splurge. I'm honored to be able to provide our audience with a promo code. Use the code THENOGLOW for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. I know that, that there's a lot of other things that um, on the daily that a lot of us go through that we would love to self-medicate and just kind of like tap out and take a break, like you said, from my mind. Um, I do want to talk about your daughter, Gemma, um, and especially as we celebrate your son, Leah's fourth birthday, your rainbow baby. Um, you are though, you are a mother of two beautiful children. And so what was that like for you as a sober woman enduring that type of loss. It's not interesting. I mean, everything lends into everything else. But as you were just talking, I was thinking about how after the loss of my daughter, I was like, there's no God. Like mm. life is black. It's a black hole. And, um, and anything that I believed in, I no longer believed in. And when people would come over to me and say, everything happens for a reason, I'd be like, go yourself, you know, or, 
oh, I understand your loss. Like I buried my great aunt. I'd be like, did you give birth to your great aunt? Like there were just so many things that made me enraged, you know, and one of them was, was God in the universe. I was like, well, clearly no one has my back, you know? And, and I think about that time and I think about what got me through that time. And there were, there were a number of things, but there was one thing that really stuck out to me, which is, and I will talk about the actual loss because perinatal loss is something that is very rarely spoken about. Um, mm-hmm. I believe, I believe, and I don't know the statistics on this, but I think that the, that, that the amount of stillbirths and, um, and miscarriages is higher than the amount of perinatal loss, which means a loss like within days or months of a baby being born. But I remembered watching an interview on CNN with Eric Clapton. I must have, I may have been a teenager. I may have been in my early twenties. I don't even know, you know, but it's like, this is where the universe just really plays a part in my life. I'll say, um, I remembered hearing an interview where he was talking about the loss of his son. And I remember how deeply affected I was by it. Like it, it, the thought of losing a child was excruciating to me before I even had a child, before I was even in a place where that was even. And I remembered him getting a call while he was on this interview from a woman, probably in a 12-step program, talking about how his experience had helped her to get through a loss of her child. And I remembered this, like I took it with me. This, I could have been 20, I guess over 22. I don't know, somewhere, it was somewhere around there. And I never forgot that. And when I was in my own grieving period, I remembered that. And I remembered that he got through it and he stayed sober. And I remember that that woman on the phone had stayed sober. And I shared about my loss a lot to the point where people were wildly uncomfortable. And that was not my goal, but my goal was to not die. Because every day that I woke up without my daughter, I wanted to die. I gave birth to my daughter in distress. I had something called HELP syndrome. Um, what is which it? Is, it's called HELP syndrome. And it stands for highly elevated liver and low platelets. So basically, I started to go into liver failure while my my blood platelets were going down, which is a lethal combination. And they, um, I gave birth to mother at 26 weeks, so three and a half months early. Um, my daughter was severely growth restricted, so she was one pound four ounces, which even for a baby at 26 weeks, she was small. Um, she came out fighting a little warrior. Her name is Gemma Sky, and. Gemma got a staph infection at the hospital that she was at. And, um, you know, a mother's love can do anything, but a mother's love cannot always save her child. So when you, after going through a loss like that, which, as you said, so many people go through and there's just not a really a, a space to have those conversations. Like I already, like off the top of my head, I know three other women who have endured perinatal loss. Going through a space where you question the presence of God or your higher power. What does God mean to you today? Okay. So this was another opportunity. And I would say an opportunity in my life where I was able to use the tools that I had been given um, in my sobriety journey to heal myself. Um, I found groups that were uh, focused and geared towards losses like mine. I found other mothers that had had experiences like mine and I, they were a lifeline for me. You know, I was so angry at the world and so angry at my higher power. And, um, and they, they never told me not to be, you know, and I had a great 
sponsor and I, I just put that out there, you know, I had a great sponsor who's been my sponsor for almost a decade who never told me to not be angry and never told me to, to go and try to do service. You know, she listened and she allowed and she gave me space. And I developed a new relationship with a new higher power of my understanding. And it took a long time to get there. You know, even after my son was born, and I will share this, and it's it's uncomfortable to even say out loud, but I was felt totally disconnected from him. Like I was obsessed with having him. And then I had no idea what to do when I had him. And it was scary. And I, and I, I didn't feel connected to him. Mm. I, I was totally disconnected from myself. So how could I have been connected to him? I just think, you know, my version of having a higher power is like kind of accepting what's happening and learning to move forward regardless of the outcome. My concept of alcoholism is also sh- like around my, as I saw alcoholism growing up, right? Um, seeing, being the child of an alcoholic, enduring trauma as an early child. And I know that you can relate to that as well. Can you open up a little bit about that in your life? I'm not responsible for what happened when I was a child, but I'm responsible for how I'm bringing that into my adult life. Yeah. Um, You know, I think I have done a lot of work both in therapy and Care and Breakthrough, which is a fabulous program, um, and just spiritual steps and all this other crap that I've done to get to a place where um, I can recognize that my family did the best with the tools that they had at the time. I want to know how your higher power has allowed you to heal yourself, but also like help heal those around you. And what, what role does service play in your life? The, the, the most important thing. An old friend of mine once said to me, she had two daughters and she had 20 something years of sobriety when I was in my first probably five years. And she said to me, I, you know, I think of my daughters as my little sponsees, you know, and I, and if you are not a sober person, let's sponsor you someone that you sponsor. So for whatever reason, I took that, I internalized that. It was way before I had children and way before I even really understood what that meant. But I like, oh, I think of my whole life in terms of service. I think about the way that I parent in terms of service. I think about uh, every job that I take as service. You know, I learned early on in my career, and I've had so many different iterations of that, that uh, God is my employer. An old friend of mine also used to say, like, you know, he sponsored like 20 guys and he was like, maybe I'm so sick. I need to do this amount of service. You know, maybe it's like the cancer balance. And that's the beauty of all of these relationships, right? It's like one day, sometimes I'm the mother, sometimes I'm the child, sometimes I'm the aunt, sometimes you're the aunt, you know? And it's like, and I think you and I are such a perfect example of this. Like, yes, with our children in, in like when we act out with our children, like some days I'm like, I just did this horrible thing to my child. I feel like you know, and you're like, it's okay, mama, like, blah, blah. and other days you do that, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, it's this pendulum swing where right. we can like kind of find some kind of equilibrium together. So for me, I'm like, no, there's not a stigma for asking for help because I know so many people who are asking for help. But do you think outside of like our, our 12, 12 step world that there is still a stigma in asking for help? I don't think that a 12-step program is like the answer for everyone, nor do I think that it's the only way to get or stay sober. Mm. I also think there are different iterations of sobriety for different people. I see that there's a stigma because I sometimes go into people's homes and into their families and the families don't want to acknowledge that the person is an addict or the person's like, I don't need a rehab. That's disgusting. I'm not an alcoholic, you know, whatever. 
absolutely there's a stigma. Um, I have never felt it, but I think that I always get ahead of it. Like I don't give anyone room to judge me because I just put it out there. You know, a waiter will come over to me at a dinner where I don't really know the girls I'm with. And the waiter will be like, do you want a drink? And I'll be like, you don't have enough alcohol in this bar for me. You know, and, and then it becomes like I normalize it. But I, I do think that unfortunately there is a stigma. But I think as more celebrities talk about it and, you know, glamorize it in certain ways. And it's not glamorous, by the way. Um, right. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's kind of ugly. Um, I think that it it becomes less of a stigma. But, but the lack of education, real education around it is part of the problem. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree about that. So hopefully we can, um, you know, open the doors and maybe inspire a couple of listeners to either look at themselves or just like start reading some literature about it. If, if there's people in their lives that they love, loved ones that they can actually like start to look into a little more um, and hopefully normalize, right? Something that is really, really difficult and hope hope to inspire people to get help, um, and offer support where possible. Um, do you, how, oh, how do you find, how do you, how do you balance? Like, how do you find balance in your life? Right. Cause your mom, you wear all these different hats. You are a sponsor to so many women. How do you find balance? I don't. Yeah. <laughs> but Wait, I'm from huh? I just dropped I my pencil. Huh? I don't. But my dear friend Robin once said to me, and I agree. I was like, "How do I find balance?" And she was like, "You don't. Like, you pick two things a day out of your twenty that you are going to focus on that you're going to be amazing at that day, and those are your focuses. On the days I have my son, my son is my focus. I don't always answer my phone." Uh, if a sponsee, unless it is an emergency, and I'm always very clear with everyone, if you are in an emergency, I will always find a way to get back to you. You know, you text me and you say you need me, I will figure it out. But if it's not an emergency, like I am with my son and that is it. Um, on days when I am working, and you know this because my son made, and this, and I love your reaction to this, my son for Mother's Day made me the thing that every single preschool in the world made, which is like this little sheet of this questionnaire of mom's favorite things. And, and it was like, how old is your mom? My mom is three years old. What is your mom's favorite color? My mom's favorite color is pink. What does your mom like to eat? Chicken. I don't like pink and I don't like chicken. But the, <laughs> the fourth question was like, what is your mommy good at? And he was like, my mommy is good at working hard. I think about that and you're like, you are good at working hard. Like, I'm glad that he knows that. Cause I was like, isn't this sad? And you were like, it's not sad. I think it's amazing. Like you do that. So in the days where I'm focused on my work and I like, you know, my life is, is not balanced. So I get to have like one or two days a week where I really focus on the no with Nikki Spo and like, it's my laser focus. And I, and, and I do that. And I have days where I really work on my other business. I do that work and it's important to me. Um, and then I have days where I'm just a mom. And then I have days where I'm just a friend. And, you know, I think I think the biggest part of, of the balance equation is like making sure that you're always allowing time for fun. Because I had years where I never had fun. I don't like to be around energy vampires. I like to be around people who are are lifters up. You know, Tina Vanderman is a great lifter upper. Um, cool. You know, all the women that you have, uh, elevators, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm an elevator. And I am a... We talk a lot about like women cheering each other on. Like that doesn't mean me like sitting in the corner, like clapping my hands. It's like, I will sit with you. I will listen to you cry and I will watch you laugh and I will laugh with you and I will hold your hand, you know, and that's part of the elevation process to me. And every woman that's in my life in a real way does that with me too. You are amazing. So are you, my dear. Thank you so much. I feel like we could talk 
We could have a two-hour two podcast. Should we do it? I think so. I think we should do a round two. I think we should do a round two song. I love you, and I'm so grateful, so grateful for you, man. Love you. Such a such an honor and such a great experience. This podcast was brought to you by Sana Skin Studio. Be sure to use my code. The No Glow for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. More than a skin studio, Sana is a movement towards healthier skin and self-love. Thank you so much for listening to The No. If you loved this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. Words are so powerful and someone may need to hear what we covered today. And if you really loved this episode, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a review. Your comments are so important and valued and they give other listeners insight on what to expect on The Know. You can connect with me personally via Instagram at Nikki Sap Spo and The Know with Nikki Spo. My hope for you today is that you are fearless in looking inward so that you can be your highest, most authentic self and go after the life of your dreams.